section thirty two of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty four the cruise of the alabama part two the building of vessels for the confederates began to go on with more boldness than ever two iron rams of the most formidable kind were built and about to be launched in eighteen sixty three for the purpose of forcibly opening the southern ports and destroying the blockading vessels mr adams kept urging on lord russell and for a long time in vain that something must be done to stop their departure lord russell at first thought the british government could not interfere in any way mr adams pressed and protested and at length was informed that the matter was now under the serious consideration of her majesty's government at last on september fifth mr adams wrote to tell lord russell that one of the ironclad vessels was on the point of departure from this kingdom on its hostile errand against the united states and added it would be superfluous in me to point out to your lordship that this is war on september eighth mr adams received the following lord russell presents his compliments to mr adams and has the honour to inform him that instructions have been issued which will prevent the departure of the two ironclad vessels from liverpool throughout the whole of the correspondence lord russell took up one position he insisted that the government could only act upon the domestic laws of england and were not bound to make any alteration in these laws to please a foreign state nothing can be more self-evident than the fact that the government cannot infringe the laws of the country during this controversy the law courts decided sometimes in the case of the alexandra for example that there was not evidence enough to justify the seizure or the stoppage of a vessel but it has to be remembered that in regard to the alabama what mr adams asked was not the breaking of english law but the holding as it were of the vessel to bail until the law could be ascertained there is however a much wider question than this in his views with regard to which lord russell seems to have been completely wrong the laws of a country are made first of all to suit its own people the people have a right to keep their laws unchanged as long as they please they are not bound to alter them to suit the pleasure or the convenience of any other nation all that is clear but it is equally clear on the other hand that they cannot get out of their responsibility to another state by merely saying we have such and such laws and we do not choose to alter them if the laws permit harm to be done to a foreign state the people maintaining the laws must either make compensation to the foreign state or they must meet her in war it is absurd to suppose that our neighbours are to submit to injury on our part merely because our laws do not give us the means of preventing the injury mr adams put it in the fairest manner to lord russell this is war in other words the american government might have said you can allow this sort of thing to go on if you like but we must point out to you that it is simply war and nothing else you are making war or allowing war to be made on us you cannot shelter yourselves under an imaginary neutrality 
if you choose to keep your laws as they are very good but you must take the consequences the extraordinary mistake which lord palmerston and lord russell made was the assumption that the existence of certain domestic regulations of ours could be a sufficient answer to claims made upon us by our neighbours suppose we had no foreign enlistment act suppose the confederates were allowed openly to raise armies and equip navies in england and to fly their flag here and go forth to make war on the united states with the permission of our government would it be enough to say to the united states we are very sorry indeed we do not like to see people making war on you from our territory but unluckily we have no law to prevent it and you must therefore only put up with it the dullest english sympathizer with the cause of the southern confederation would not be taken in by a plea like this or expect the united states to admit it yet the case set up by lord palmerston and lord russell was really not different in kind it merely pleaded that although our ports were made the basis and indeed the only basis of naval operations against the united states we could not help it our laws were not framed as to give our neighbours any protection the obvious retort on america's side was then we must protect ourselves we cannot admit that the condition of your municipal laws entitles you to become with impunity a nuisance and a pest to your neighbours the position which lord palmerston and lord russell took up was wisely and properly abandoned by lord stanley now lord derby when the conservatives came into office it was then frankly admitted that every state is responsible for the manner in which the working of its municipal laws may affect the interests of its neighbours we need not however anticipate just now a controversy and a settlement yet to come lord russell it may be remarked was mistaken in another part of his case he was able to show that in some way or other the authorities of the united states had failed to prevent the enlistment of british subjects in this country for the armies of the union but his mistake was in supposing that this was a practical answer to the complaints made by mr adams there is some difference between a small grievance and a very great grievance the grievance to us in the secret enlistment of a few british subjects for the northern service was not very serious the authorities of the united states acknowledged that it was improper and promised to use all diligence to put a stop to it and of course if they had failed to do so it would be entirely for england to consider what steps she ought to take to obtain a redress of any wrong done to her but in a practical controversy there was no comparison between the grievances it is not a reasonable reply to a neighbour who complains that our fierce dog has broken into his house and bitten his children if we say that his cat has stolen into our kitchen and eaten our cream it is strange too to observe that lord russell and the chief baron and other authorities constantly dwell on the fact that a neutral may sell arms to either belligerent and ask triumphantly if arms why not an armed vessel if shot and shell why not a cruiser or a ram there is at all events one plain reason which would be enough even if there were none other it is not possible to prove that the shot and shell have done any damage 
it is possible to prove that the cruiser has we cannot follow the rifle or the bullet to its destination we can follow the alabama it would be idle to try to prove that a certain lot of gunpowder was discharged against a northern regiment but it is easy to prove that the alabama burned american vessels and confiscated american cargoes the bitterness of the feeling in america was not mitigated nor the sense of english unfairness made less keen by the production during the controversy of a dispatch sent from england to washington at the opening of the crimean war in which the english government expressed a confident hope that the authorities of the united states would give orders that no privateer under russian colours should be equipped or victualled or admitted with its prizes into any of the ports of the united states the controversy was carried on for some years it became mixed up with disputes about confederate raids from canada into the states and later on about fenian raids from the states into canada and questions of fishery right and various other matters of discussion but the principal subject of dispute the only one of real gravity was that which concerned the crews of the alabama lord russell at length declined peremptorily to admit that the english government were in any way responsible for what had been done by the confederate cruisers or that england was called on to alter her domestic law to please her neighbours mr adams therefore dropped the matter for the time intimating however that it was only put aside for the time the united states government had their hands full just then and in any case could afford to wait the question would keep the british government were glad to be relieved from the discussion and from the necessity of arguing the various points with mr adams and were under the pleasing impression that they had heard the last of it surveying the diplomatic controversy at this distance of time one cannot but think that mr adams comes best out of it no minister representing the interests of his state in a foreign capital could have had a more trying position to sustain and a more difficult part to play mr adams knew that the tone of the society in which he had to move was hostile to his government and to his cause it was difficult for him to remain always patient and yet to show that the american government could not be expected to endure everything it was not easy to retain always the calm courtesy which his place demanded and which was indeed an inheritance in his family of stately public men he was embarrassed sometimes by the officious efforts the volunteer intervention of some of his own countrymen who knowing nothing of english political life and english social ways fancied they were making a favourable impression on public opinion here by the tactics of a fall campaign at home moreover it is plain that for a long time mr adams was in much doubt as to the capacity of the military leaders of the north and he well knew that nothing but military success could rescue the union from the diplomatic conspiracies which were going on in europe for the promotion of the southern cause mr adams appears to have borne himself all through with judgment temper and dignity lord russell does not show to so much advantage he is sometimes petulant 
he is too often inclined to answer mr adams's grave and momentous remonstrances with retorts founded on allegations against the north which even if well founded were of slight comparative importance when mr adams complains that the alabama is sweeping american commerce from the seas lord russell too often replies with some complaint about the enlistment of british subjects for the service of the union as if the confederates making war on the united states from english ports with english ships and crews were no graver matter of complaint than the story true or false of some american agent having enlisted tom doolan and sandy mcsneesh to fight for the north mr seward does not come out of the correspondence well there is a curious evasiveness in his frequent floods of eloquence which contrasts unpleasantly with mr adams's straightforward and manly style mr seward writes as if he were under the impression that he could palaver mr adams and lord russell and the british public into not believing the evidence of their senses at the gloomiest hour of the fortunes of the north mr adams faces the facts and confident of the ultimate future makes no pretence at ignoring the seriousness of the present danger mr seward seems to think that public attention can be cheated away from a recognition of realities by a display of inappropriate rhetorical fireworks at a moment when the prospect of the north seemed especially gloomy and when it was apparent to every human creature that its military affairs had long been in hopelessly bad hands mr seward writes to inform mr adams that our assault upon richmond is for the moment suspended and is good enough to add that no great and striking movements or achievements are occurring and the government is rather preparing its energies for renewed operations than continuing to surprise the world by new and brilliant victories the northern commanders had indeed for some time been surprising the world but not at all by brilliant victories and the suggestion that the northern government might go on winning perpetual victories if they only wished it but that they preferred for the present not to dazzle the world too much with their success must have fallen rather chillingly on mr adams's ear mr adams knew only too well that the north must win victories soon or they might find themselves confronted with a european confederation against them the emperor napoleon was working hard to get england to join with him in recognizing the south mr roebuck had at one time a motion in the house of commons calling on the english government to make up their minds to the recognition and mr adams had explained again and again that such a step would mean war with the northern states mr adams was satisfied that the fate of mr roebuck's motion would depend on the military events of a few days he was right the motion was never pressed to a division for during its progress there came at one moment the news that general grant had taken vicksburg on the mississippi and that general meade had defeated general lee at gettysburg and put an end to all thought of a southern invasion this news was at first received with resolute incredulity in london by the advocates and partisans of the south in some of the clubs there was positive indignation that such things should even be reported the outburst of wrath was natural that was the turning point of the war although not many saw it even then 
the south never had a chance after that hour there was no more said in this country about the recognition of the southern confederation and the emperor of the french was thenceforward free to follow out his plans as far as he could and alone the emperor napoleon however was for the present confident enough he was under the impression that he had heard the last of the protests against his mexican expedition this expedition was in the beginning a joint undertaking of england france and spain its professed object as set forth in a convention signed in london on october thirty first eighteen sixty one was to demand from the mexican authorities more efficacious protection for the persons and properties of their the allied sovereign subjects as well as a fulfilment of the obligations contracted toward their majesties by the republic of mexico mexico had been for a long time in a very disorganized state the constitutional government of benito juarez had come into power but the reactionary party was still struggling to regain the upper hand and a sort of guerrilla warfare was actually going on the government of juarez whatever its defects gave promise of being stronger and better than that of its predecessors it was however burdened with responsibility for the debts incurred and the crimes committed by its predecessors and it entered into an agreement with several foreign states england among the rest to make over a certain proportion of the customs revenues to meet the claims of foreign creditors this arrangement was not kept and timely satisfaction was not given for wrongs committed against foreign subjects wrongs for the most part if not altogether done by the government which juarez had expelled from power but for which of course he as the successor to power was properly responsible lord russell who had acted with great forbearance toward mexico up to this time now agreed to cooperate with france and spain in exacting reparation from juarez but he defined clearly the extent to which the intervention of england would go england would join in an expedition for the purpose if necessary of seizing on mexican custom houses and thus making good the foreign claims but she would not go a step further she would have nothing to do with upsetting the government of mexico or imposing any european system on the mexican people accordingly the second article of the convention pledged the contracting parties not to seek for themselves any acquisition of territory or any special advantage and not to exercise in the internal affairs of mexico any influence of a nature to prejudice the right of the mexican nation to choose and to constitute freely the form of its government the emperor of the french however had already made up his mind that he would establish a sort of feudatory monarchy in mexico he had long and various schemes and ambitions floating in his mind concerning those parts of america on the shores of the gulf of mexico which were once the possessions of france in his dreamy fantastic way he had visions of restoring french influence and authority somewhere along the shores of the gulf and the outbreak of the southern rebellion appeared to give him just the opportunity that he desired at the time when the convention was signed the affairs of the federal states seemed all but hopeless and for a long time after they gave no gleam of hope for the restoration of the union 
Louis Napoleon was convinced, and for a long time after, that the southern states would succeed in establishing their independence. He seems to have been of Mr. Roebuck's way of thinking that the only fear we ought to have is lest the independence of the South should be established without us. He was glad, therefore, of the chance afforded him by the Mexican Convention, and at the very time when he signed the Convention with the pledge contained in its second article, he had already been making arrangements to found a monarchy in Mexico. If he could have ventured to set up a monarchy with a French prince at its head, he would probably have done so, but this would have been too bold a venture. He therefore persuaded the Archduke Maximilian, brother of the Emperor of Austria, to accept the crown of the monarchy he proposed to set up in Mexico. The Archduke was a man of pure and noble character, but evidently wanting in strength of mind, and he agreed after some hesitation to accept the offer. Meanwhile the joint expedition sailed. We sent only a line of battleship, two frigates, and seven hundred marines. France sent, in the first instance, about 2,500 men, whom she largely reinforced immediately after. Spain had about 6,000 men under the command of the late Marshal Prim. The Allies soon began to find that their purposes were incompatible. There was much suspicion about the designs of France, although the French statesmen were every day repudiating in stronger and stronger terms the intentions imputed to them, and which soon proved to be the resolute purposes of the Emperor of the French. Some of the claims set up by France disgusted the other allies. The Jecker claims were for a long time after as familiar a subject of ridicule as our own Pacifico claims had been. A Swiss house of Jecker and company had lent the former government of Mexico $750,000 and got bonds from that government, which was on its very last legs, for fifteen millions of dollars. The government was immediately afterwards upset, and Juarez came into power. Monsieur Jecker modestly put in his claim for fifteen millions of dollars. Juarez refused to comply with the demand. He offered to pay the seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars lent and five per cent interest, but he declined to pay exactly twenty times the amount of the sum advanced. M. Jecker had by this time become somehow a subject of France, and the French government took up his claim. It was clear that the emperor of the French had resolved that there should be war. At last, the designs of the French government became evident to the English and Spanish plenipotentiaries, and England and Spain withdrew from the convention. England certainly ought never have entered into it, but as she had been drawn in, the best thing, then, was for her to get out of it as decently and as quickly as she could. Nothing in the enterprise became her like to the leaving of it. End of section 32